Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders saying the entire system has to change. It's broken. You have Joe Biden saying America's not broken. This is an aberration. We have to go back to how we were. And then you have President Trump saying we got to go way back farther <laughs> in some ways to, to when America was great. Although maybe he'd argue he's made it great already. Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation on Hong Kong, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, election 2020, and her random walk down Wall Street and just about every beat in the news. Stay with us. This episode is sponsored by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based. For those who have more than a 401k to manage, visit GoEvoAdvisors.com. That's GoEvoAdvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide. Online at pfgc.com. Joining me from New York is Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS News's Face the Nation and a senior foreign affairs correspondent for the network. In past lives, Margaret was a competitive Irish step dancer. (laughs) She speaks Arabic. She hosted morning financial TV on Bloomberg. She reported on everything for CNBC. Madam, do you play the harpsichord or brew kombucha? (laughs) Uh, on the to-do list. No, my my life now revolves often around uh, raising my nine-month-old and um, trying to see my husband. (laughs) You know, when I, when I, you're one of the, you've been on the show before, but I love booking you and you and I cross paths. I think you were covering retail at CNBC. Yes. We were were in Inglewood (laughs) Cliffs together. It was 10 or 10 years ago or so. It was around the time of the financial crisis. and Incredible time. Incredible times. But you were you were ta- asking me about my, my background and coming to the United States from Iran and your interest in Egyptology and whatnot. Wow. And then a blink of a, of a lifetime later, right, we're covering the Arab Spring at Bloomberg together and you're in Tahrir Square and you're covering that and bam, you know, fast forward about nine years and now you're moderator of Face the Nation. Life comes at you fast. It does. It does come at you fast. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the pace we're all at right now. We're all just adjusting to such a fast-moving world. I've been fortunate, and you were generous in laying out that career path, but, you know, those dots have connected in a way for me coming from financial news, moving into the national security space, which, you know, dipped back into my educational background. Um, It all has kind of come together, particularly in trying to cover the Trump administration, where you see so many folks from Wall Street ending up at 1600 Pennsylvania, supporting the president. And my background in national security has paid off, certainly, um, given the level of crises we're facing right now. But I, I never would have known it back when you and I were talking at CNBC and I was doing the retail detail and covering Walmart. Um, <laughs> but it was a great experience to also see, and I, I think we still underestimate how much of so many different stories is rooted in economics and real-life financials for people. So starting off in the financial space was actually a really good education for me. And the upshot for us is it's great to have you as a guest. I don't know if the correct metaphor is you're kind of Inspector Gadget-like and that you can pivot from finance to foreign affairs to political wonk-out stuff, or do we call you like a nine-layer dip of, <laughs> of beats? You know, I'm full of metaphors. It's kind of useless, really but it's, <laughs> it's always a treat. I could throw tariffs at you. I could throw Biden-Trump at you. I could throw Mayor Pete. We could talk about Saudi Arabia and Iran, and, and we will. But to that extent, let's start with Hong Kong and these surprising uh, protests, uh, 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 people really uh, 
hitting the streets, young and old people in the hundreds of thousands in opposition to this proposed change of the extradition rules to mainland China. And this comes 30 years and a week after mm-hmm. the Tiananmen Square crackdown. So it's, it's, you know, history doesn't repeat itself perfectly, but there's certainly many analogs. It's fascinating uh, to see this. Any kind of protest within the confines of China, Hong Kong is its own beast. The British colony that had self-rule now really kind of resisting a lot of the arms of the Chinese state as they try to establish a firmer hold on the space. As, As you laid out, that's what some of these protests are about is lashing out at an extradition bill that would allow people to be sent to mainland China for trial. And that bill in and of itself, the possibility of it has raised such concern that the surveillance state of China is exerting itself. This is something that you hear a lot about, even in Washington, this concern that the way China is surveilling and establishing controls of areas like Shenzhen, that province where you see Muslim minorities being rounded up into internment camps. Pentagon officials have called them concentration camps, an incredibly loaded term. These are test cases for the kind of rule China wants to roll out. I mean, it sounds like you're talking about a movie, but this is something that people are raising red flags about. Certainly in Hong Kong, they're very close to it and they're seeing sort of the worst case scenario in their minds, many of these protesters, which is what they're pushing back at. But you're also hearing things like this on Capitol Hill from lawmakers who want to try to stop American tech companies from doing business with firms that provide surveillance equipment that may be used in some of these provinces. So we know Hong Kong's basic law specifies that uh, Hong Kong will enjoy a, quote, high degree of autonomy after the 1997 handover back to China. Even so, Beijing, it's kind of frittered away at many of the guarantees. It's a it's a kind of a slippery thing. Memories are short term in nature. It's 21 years after that. And you mentioned the surveillance state. I mean, unbelievable technology that Beijing is about you know, can muster to inventory its massive population. And now the question is, what's striking to me is when you see these protests and young people and, you know, rubber bullets and tear gas and everything, the steps that they're taking to distort their faces, the bizarre masks and uh, rags that they're wearing around their heads to kind of maybe uh, jam that, that incipient surveillance. That's a good point. I mean, the other question is, how does this play out over the next few days? Are the control levels you've seen through the local Hong Kong police? Do you start seeing a stronger hand? Do you start seeing, you know, the Chinese government exert more control over the Hong Kong police and those cracking down on the protesters? It's going to be fascinating to watch. I'm interested to see, and I'm, I would be surprised, uh, pleasantly so, in some ways, to hear if the White House comments on this in any way later today when President Trump speaks alongside the Polish president at a press avail because he really has stayed quiet on a lot of the abuses that the Chinese state is accused of carrying out, that the Trump State Department, that the Trump Pentagon, that the Trump CIA is loudly, surprisingly, even the CIA, raising concerns about the surveillance state and the the persecution levels in China right now. The White House has remained silent, and what we hear is behind the scenes a lot of officials are debating this, whether the megaphone that the president has should be used or not. His concern is jeopardizing in any way the trade deal that the U.S. and China are trying to hammer out. And it's not at all clear if they'll be able to break through the impasse they seem to be at right now 
when Xi Jinping and President Trump will cross paths at the G20 later this month in Japan. So it's an interesting moment to see what's happening in Hong Kong and whether the U.S. wants to take the role of standing up for these protesters or standing up for the values that they seem to be demonstrating on behalf of, whether that's a strategic choice to weigh in in a good way or not, is up for debate. But I will be curious if the president is pressed to do so. Margaret, you covered the State Department for CBS News for four years. And I remember there were some enormous headlines there, the the nuclear impasse and the breakthrough with Iran that has since been rolled back, the restoration of diplomatic ties with Cuba, uh, back and forth with North Korea, the Ukraine, uh, the accord to transfer control of Syria's chemical weapons, which, you know, they they kind of backtracked on and, and Syria has since become a failed state. Alas, but I I ask you, when you look at Donald Trump and the people who have gone through defense and state and everything, who is the locus of control of power for foreign policy in this administration? It still remains the president, ultimately, because he uh, the the way this White House operates is um, very different. Uh, There are sort of multiple centers of power, but the president at the top of it doesn't seem to be concerned about upending any of those centerpieces of control or or attempt to control policymaking. You know, the president says he ultimately likes to hear the National Security Advisor John Bolton and his more hawkish views, though he often overrules him, he says. But it's interesting that he wants to keep that voice there. The, the problem, though, and, and that's as someone who wants to sort of hear ideas out and get a number of different opinions, that sounds like that could be a constructive process. The problem that I hear officials complaining about from within is that in that, okay, everyone has completely different worldviews process at this table, the bureaucracy doesn't know how to churn forward sometimes in developing the policy when there are competing power centers oftentimes that can stop decisions from being made until the president decides to sort of upend the table itself, you know, throw over the negotiating table or totally pull them in a different way. So there's a lot of frustration that there may not be strategic planning in the way there was in the past with other administrations or attempt at strategic planning. There are certainly, you know, national security strategies, national defense strategies that exist on paper. And that's what people like You know, the former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster or others would point you towards saying, no, we are doing big picture thinking long term in terms of how the U.S. should face off versus China. When it comes to actually making the decisions and the policy threads, pulling them all in the same direction, you're not seeing a lot of that part of executing the strategy. A lot of this are tactical moves or often reactionary moves. Are they ultimately successful at achieving things like the president's trade deal? Maybe, but do they position the U.S. in the long term to counter some of these threats? That's the bigger complaint you hear often, even from people on the inside. And you brought up Iran. That's the example of that. You know, the Iran deal, even Defense Secretary Mattis said, you know, this wasn't a friendship agreement. It it may have been flawed, but it, it dealt with a narrow portion of the nuclear program only. Why don't we keep that and then try to counter all the other stuff Iran is doing? And instead you have sort of pulling the pin out and seeing what happens in this chaos uh, that happened after the U.S. pulled out of the deal. So there's not a lot of 
pulling forward in one strategic way. There's a lot of fighting from within inside the administration that you see happening. I have to ask, Margaret, and, and um, you know, this is a kind of a, a academic exercise, thankfully, at this point. It's not yet there. But suppose the situation in Hong Kong does truly boil over and it forces Beijing's hands akin to something like Tiananmen. I mean, they say, get out of the way, ruling government of Hong Kong, get out of the way, autonomy, we're sending in troops, we're going to crack down. And it forces this administration's hand. What could the United States do? I'm sure the possibility has crossed your mind on the way to work or looking at the headlines of the past week. Like a Tiananmen-type crackdown in Hong Kong. I, I have to ask someone because... Again, we're all we're all ruining the the reaction of the first Bush administration right. in China, but it's a far different beast right now. It's an economic juggernaut. It's a national security defense juggernaut. You're dealing with a completely different counterparty. Hong Kong is such a unique animal too, entity within China that what you just pointed out is is, is on the nose. I mean, the idea of disrupting it as a financial hub, as a hub for businesses around the world, that has to give some pause before you push too far in terms of unrest. But there is nothing that the Chinese state and Chinese leadership seems to dislike more than unrest. So how do you exert control? You know, does it lead to a clash? Perhaps that's not what, you know, would, would, um, allow for the stability financially, et cetera, socially. But, um, it certainly could be a great test case to see what Xi Jinping wants to do. You know, President Trump likes to call him a king, that he's got this incredible power he has accumulated that doesn't seem challenged from within. What does that mean in terms of how he's going to handle things? You could also argue that, as the administration does, Xi Jinping has pressures from within his own state in terms of managing the economy of China and that he needs to make some adaptations. The business class within his country may need to see some adjustments financially, you know, make some hard decisions that you could choose to take under the guise of negotiating a trade deal with the United States, and that this will allow him the political will to do it through a trade deal or something like that. Does this clash or whatever we're watching unfold in Hong Kong does this add into the political calculation Xi Jinping has to make in terms of some hard choices he may be faced with in the next few weeks on his own country's economy and whether to back down from this trade showdown with the United States? Can he afford more economic pressure when he's also seeing some political unrest? Maybe that's overstating it to call it political unrest, but certainly protests in the street, which are highly unusual even in Hong Kong. Well, talk to me about that because there is this resumed Cold War with Washington and the United States, which is very much a frenemy. China counts on the United States. It, it owns a ton of our treasuries. A big buyer, the greenback. The consumer market here is still the most important. All the, the companies offshore, their manufacturing capabilities to these cities that have popped up along the coast in China. I want to see how a person like Xi, who in some respects is looked at as the most powerful man in the world, and I, I think that must needle Donald Trump some, has to deal with what has so far been a nuisance in Hong Kong. And at the same time, he's in the throes of a true trade war with Washington, D.C. and Donald Trump and um, more than rhetoric being sent back and forth and having to protect a national champion in Huawei, this mm. company, this telco giant there in China, which effectively has been blacklisted from the United States. 
That's a fascinating story um, in and of itself. But it gets to this idea. I had Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, longtime you know uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, somebody who pioneered Western and foreign investment in China, in communist China. And he was on the program recently. He's someone who's close to Chinese leadership or has been over the years. And he's raising concerns over what he calls an economic cold war, an economic iron wall going up between the U.S. and China, the the world's two largest economies. He was specifically focusing on that technology portion of it that you just raised with the the fight over. I know people get confused by 5G. I certainly have only a, a narrow understanding of what that higher speed internet access would mean technologically for the U.S., but it it is understandable when lawmakers in the U.S. go out and make the argument to the American people that if you buy Chinese technology, a Huawei-made phone or some other LTE product or something like that, that you could be helping the surveillance state. People understand that portion of it. And so if you see this argument being taken to the consumer side, you know, already you see the Pentagon and others saying within the government, you can't use these products. But now you have the Commerce Department with this order to cut off commercial uh, exposure to Huawei and its products. It's interesting because you see this divide happening or starting to happen in the U.S. Huawei already, though, has its business interests established in places like Eastern Europe. Um, And that's what's raising such concern. You've heard Vice President Pence talk about it. You've heard the Secretary of State raised concerns about some of our European allies allowing these Chinese-made consumer goods into their markets in a way that they argue the Chinese state could ultimately but use Margaret, to their benefit. There's, there's no one else. There's no friendly player who can provision it. I don't know what's left of Alcatel-Lucent or Ericsson, Nokia. Right. I mean, these these companies that have been not, not up to snuff. I mean, this is gains from trade and comparative advantage. You as the United States and Pompeo and Trump are trying to sell the script that you're getting a terrible Trojan horse when you buy this equipment as well. This is an extension. If we look back 40 years, the Chinese government, in fact, military technology, ceded its dominance of the electronics industry. And now the two are inextricably linked. And you can't just a la carte say, I want the cutting edge technology without the espionage. I mean, it's it's take it or leave it with China. We know if, if, you know, United States players want to be there, that they have to open up all sorts of IP to China, which brings me back to your interview with Former Secretary Hank Paulson and, and, and CEO of Goldman Sachs in a past life. Did we maybe get China wrong coming out of 1989? The idea is that the, the compact that Beijing made with yeah. its people is if you ignore, uh, if you don't, don't touch this third rail, don't go marching in Tiananmen Square again, don't go uh, pining for democracy, but you can pig out on all manner of capitalism. You can become wealthy. You can enjoy your animal spirits and feast on that. That seems to have worked for the country, and it's taken a record number of people out of poverty in a in you know in right. a 30-year period. But it has not shown really the fruits of easing or democracy. If anything, we see – you talked about the repression of the, the Muslim minority. You talk about the surveillance state. You talk about maybe aggressions in the South China Sea. Are, are people like Paulson and others who have been kind of more apologists for the engage at any cost thing maybe rethinking their stance? I think uh, Hank Paulson, who you're, who you're right, I mean, I, I don't think he'd like the term apologist, but certainly someone who has sort of played down some of the concerns has changed his tune a bit in recent years in particular, seeing more of a, of a risk and more of a threat there potentially to the U.S. 
I think it's an interesting question. I mean, look, uh, American consumers, global consumers are kind of their own worst enemy on this because how do you how do you strategize against cheap? People like cheap products. They that's why they looked at these Chinese, you know, made goods as uh, viable alternatives, not because, you know, they felt some great patriotism to buy American. They just liked buying cheap. Um, and that's how you saw the uh, appeal, right, in, in Europe to a lot of these goods to allow them in to build out infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, now the U.S. is trying to maybe make up for that in saying things like, as Pompeo said to uh, the U.K. recently, like, we might need to stop sharing intelligence with you. I mean, that seems like an unthinkable threat that we would in any way break apart our uh, five eyes, you know, the closest intelligence sharing assets that we have with any governments in the world because of this concern of uh, the Trojan horse that you, as you described it. But that's the threat that we're telling our allies right now. There is sort of a making up for lost time, making up for lost ground idea that you're seeing the Trump administration trying to play out right now. But does that ultimately work? I mean, you don't see Germany or a lot of these other European countries buckling, at least at this point, to the U.S. demands. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Margaret Brennan. She's moderator of Face the Nation on CBS News. She's also a senior foreign affairs correspondent for the network, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, you did begin your career for uh, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser mm-hmm. when it ran on on CNBC. I grew up watching that guy. You know what? I always thought he looked like a person you might see on the back of a $2 bill, like a yes. founding father. And he would never blink. You know, God bless him. I mean, it was actually something people did on Friday nights. Watch Louis Rukeyser. Watch him invite these portfolio managers and money managers, and they take their seats on the leather couches. And, you know, you parlayed that into this sprawling journalism career of yours. Well, it was an interesting job first out of college to, uh, you know, learn from Louis Rukeyser, who had been a foreign correspondent for like 30 years before he got into financial news. But I think the value that I learned, you know, working in a newsroom in a frenetic financial news environment where oftentimes you could confuse the anchors or the reporters for like ESPN commentators calling a game as it's played out with the kind of cool, clear, contextualized analysis that was delivered at the end of the week by someone like Louis Rukeyser. Really, he was kind of the only one doing it at the time. And in some ways, I think back to that now in my role as moderator on Face the Nation, which is a 65-year institution. And the idea of why it remains relevant is is that idea of context, perspective, calm, clear. You know, you, you don't need to f- pretend to be the Washington insider moment by moment and know every little movement, but you do need to sort of know what matters to you as an American at home and how it's going to affect you and what actually is important and not just interesting in terms of the storylines coming out of Washington. So it's it influences my thinking in many ways, actually, that job I had when I was just 22 years old. <laughs> Margaret, uh, to, you know, to kind of wrap up the talk of China for the time being, do any of your sources either romance or dread the notion of a hard landing for China? It hasn't had a hard landing in the post-WTO right. period. I mean, in the in the 18 years since it ascended to that slot, it buffered itself really well with massive spending in the wake of 2008. It keeps feeding this beast. It keeps this property and manufacturing boom going on. But you wonder, especially with this Hong Kong situation, 
Revolution and the trade war, if some sort of exogenous shock could finally fell that machine or throw a wrench into this this unbelievable economic wealth creation machine? I, I feel like that, I mean, how many times have we talked about an economic bubble in China? Um, I, I feel like there is that concern or that daydream. Some of it has to do with the fact that there's just such, uh, it, it's such an opaque place politically and economically to truly understand what's happening because it is so state controlled in many ways. But, you know, you you got at this idea a little bit in, in terms of talking about, you know, did, did we overestimate what might have happened in terms of opening up by China being welcomed into the capitalist systems? And, and that's kind of part of this Trumpian questioning of the global, you know, institutions, the IMF, the World Banks, all these things that were meant to sort of uplift and uphold ideals and values of the West have been used to their advantage, the Trump administration would argue, by China um, and not adapted the ideals and values, but certainly used to their advantage the financial opportunities that have come out of being part of those um, systems. And so we overestimated, quote unquote, the West overestimated its ability to spread its values, perhaps, in a way that could challenge the state. We're seeing China, um, and that's what the surveillance state portion of the conversation comes back. They've managed to balance it all. Um, is there something that could really disrupt that balance that could challenge their ability to maintain such control, to have this hybrid state-controlled, not totally communist, capitalist, but state-controlled authoritarian place. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it, it's certainly something that we don't talk enough about and I know keeps a lot of national security officials up at night. We talk a lot about the flashpoints, the hot spots, the the war zones we know of. There's a lot of concern in the national security community that the U.S. does not have a long-term strategy to uh, challenge China. Well, let's go a little bit uh, west of China on the fabled Silk Road to Iran, if I can transition you. We are on the 10th anniversary of the Green Movement protests in the streets. It was briefly called the Persian Spring in Iran. And it strikes me, I mean, you know, where all these these people, young and old, took to the streets to protest the results of uh, Ahmadinejad winning a purported 63% of the vote. And many people allege that the vote was rigged. And then the opposition and the Green Movement people were put under house arrest. It struck me that that came 10 years after the student protests of a crackdown at a university. And then 10 years uh, after 1989, mm. June of 1989, where the Ayatollah Khomeini died shortly, I think a few days after the Tiananmen Square protest. And that itself was 10 years after the Iranian revolution itself with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Tehran bringing the Ayatollah Khomeini to power. What is it about Iran? I mean, clearly it's an economic story too in that the Trump administration has come back in and, and reversed um, you know, the rapprochement of the Obama administration. But you're always told by people like, you know, I've, I interviewed in the past, um, who is the guy, you must know his name, at Goldman Sachs, the emerging former emerging markets guru who coined the next 11. He said, Iran can be one of the next great emerging markets. And yet you have uh, a regime that kind of gets in the way of that right. thaw with everybody else. What are your thoughts? Well, in the case of Iran, the, the regime is in the business uh, of, you know, its own economic um, sort of sustainability. Uh, that's one of the challenges is that the the military itself, the IRGC, that 
elite revolutionary guard is in the construction business. It's in <laughs> all, all the it's it's tentacles are so um, intertwined with what keeps that country uh, alive economically, even though they're being strangled by international sanctions. That's kind of the challenge um, in cutting them off sanctions wise. In some ways, it benefits those who hold on to um, some of these few economic lifelines that Iran has. Uh, that's the argument against some of these sanctions, that it um, consolidates or keeps control consolidated in the hands of so few uh, because it chokes off any potential business from competing um, against the state. An interesting subplot here in that you have the headline today is that the Houthi strike against an airport in Saudi Arabia injures 26 people. The Houthis are looked at as a proxy of Iran, right, in, in Yemen's civil war. Talk to me about the uh, enmity between uh, Riyadh and Tehran. Um, that's something that we, we, we I, I, I don't know if, what was the inception of Saudi Arabia finally saying that Iran is our enemy? We're not just OPEC brothers. And in fact, we're more aligned with Israel on Iran than we are aligned with Iran right. on Iran. Right. I mean, that's a fascinating story. Um, I mean, if you were to ask uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, MBS, as he's called, uh, he would say that uh, it was Iran who created um, Islamic terrorism, Islamist movement began, he would say, uh, in 1979 in Tehran, that it's not something in Saudi Arabia. Of course, uh, those who looked at the beginnings of the um, Wahhabist sort of move, the, the more extreme versions of Wahhabism would argue, no, actually, there were things happening within our own country at that time as well. But uh, the, look, the enmity has been there. The, the threat level now that Saudi Arabia perceives, it's not totally uh, in their heads. I mean, look, you had those rockets being fired uh, into Saudi territory quite nearby their airport in Riyadh not too long ago um, by what the U.S. believed were these proxy forces uh, operating out of neighboring Yemen. There's a reason to be threatened, but whether it you know, should be the one driving force, uh, the um, boogeyman behind every corner, as Iran seems to be for the Saudi state and for the Gulf states is a question worth asking. But it's also the boogeyman that um, Israel sees and it behind every corner in terms of instability in the region. And in some ways, rightly so. Look at all of the instability uh, and threats carried out by Hezbollah, uh, by other proxy forces in the region. And it's that um, perceived enemy that is in common to the Netanyahu government in Israel. Um, and I, I emphasize the Netanyahu government um, and some of the Gulf states right now. But what does that ultimately end up becoming? I mean, you already have some intelligence uh, work between the countries happening. You've had it for years between countries like Egypt, which does have a, a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, so th the neighborhood has always seemed to um, point to Iran as behind threats. Now they seem to be unified in perceiving um, what Iran is doing in places like Syria and in Yemen as destabilizing the entire region. Is it safe to say that there is now an Arab-Israeli United States balance of power firewall against Iran and its proxies? To a certain extent. 
uh, a lot of the states, Arab states, the Saudi Arabia's, the UAE in particular, would like to see more. Um, and certainly the Netanyahu government in Israel would like to see more uh, in terms of the U.S. pushing back on Iran um, in a more aggressive way. But the question is, to what extent does that serve American national interests and to what extent are you uh, operating on behalf of, um, you know, some some close allies, but those who really are kind of asking you to, to do your, their work for them? That's the argument that exists around this space right now. Talk to me about Israel, if you can. Netanyahu is the ruler, but he has to call another election. It seems like he can't count on anything. Is he going yeah. to be indicted? Is he going to be able to get another coalition government? He clearly has a really close ally in, in Trump. They keep blowing kisses at one another, but both mm. of them are are uh, not on exactly safe footing domestically. That's right. I mean, it is hard to ever count Bibi Netanyahu out. He has had politically nine lives. He is the longest serving, I believe, Israeli prime minister since the founding father of the state, uh, Ben-Gurion. So uh, don't don't bet against him. Uh, but this was fascinating that it even got to this point where he could not put a coalition together to uh, finalize the results, essentially, of the, the first election. That's why they have to go to the second round. Um, but Netanyahu often, one of the most powerful and popular things he does is uh, set himself up as the the only one who can protect Israel, the only one who can get its uh, dear friend, uh, the United States, to really sort of, in some ways, he's kind of played it out as do, it, do his bidding, right? Um, that he's laid out the case that it's not that the United States is making these choices um, in their own interest, they're making these choices because of the close relationship I have with the Trump administration. That's what Netanyahu campaigned on. That's the argument he would lay out for getting U.S. recognition of the Golan Heights as uh, Israeli territory rather than disputed territory, which it is under international law. Um, same thing with, you know, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. And Netanyahu laid all of that out as essentially a favor to him. Um, and so he's laid himself out as the protector of the Israeli state against the Iranian threat, et cetera. But we'll see if he can survive some of these uh, charges as well on the possible indictment ahead. But I think going back to one of your earlier questions or conversation topics, you know, in terms of what the Trump administration's policy is toward Iran, that shared uh, enemy uh, Defense Secretary Gates, I recently spoke to him for Face the Nation, and he was, he thought it was a mistake for the U.S. to have exited the nuclear pact. He thought there were a lot of problems with it, but... This he, was Bush 43's defense secretary. Exactly. Yeah. And and he stayed on through the Obama administration um, as well. So he served, uh, going back to the 60s, he served, um, you know, in the CIA. He's gone through that agency uh, and then served as defense secretary um, in those war years. Uh, but he lays out the case that, you know, while the Obama administration may have been sort of 
um, hoping for the best and maybe against some of the facts there in hoping that they could negotiate the rest of this deal uh, and the rest of the problems away in the future, that the Trump administration has created more problems for itself by pulling out of this deal and, in fact, is overestimating its ability to financially strangle Iran because they are underestimating the brutality of the Iranian regime, he argues. You mentioned the 2009 um, green movement and the uprising. And there was disappointment among many people, particularly in the human rights community, that the Obama administration didn't stand up But more. Margaret, I don't know how, you know, you, you talk to people all the time, like Bill Crystal is big on saying that we have to offer suasion and we stand with the students. I mean, what are you going to do stand with the students? Unless you're willing to, you know, offer uh, uh, air support or do something Libya-Panama-wise, right. there's no teeth to, to any of that, that, that talk. It's kind of platitudinous. Fair, but there are things you can do sort of behind the scenes is what someone particularly coming from the kind of agency background that uh, the, def- the then defense secretary um, came from would lay out for you. That's I mean, it brings to mind Venezuela right now. I'm thinking about this this uh, huge petro economy, which has failed. I mean, the 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 upstart in Juan Guaido has had. Uh, chances where he says, I'm finally marching to the palace. This is it. We're, we're going in for the kill. And it's kind of anticlimactic. No, Maduro hangs on. No, Maduro is backed by uh, Russia and by China. And it's not like the United States could go back into the dark arts of, of espionage of the 50s and 60s and just take out a regime like that. It kind of has to resort to sanctions and suasions. And you realize we're, uh, you know, we're not as crafty as we used to be. Or you just lower the volume of what you're trying to do, right? You don't set uh, that that's the argument that things can be done diplomatically behind the scenes to help strengthen opposition members that can um, ultimately create challenges for the leadership in a way that doesn't give them the political outs of blaming big bad America as, you know, the boogeyman here, right? Maduro in Venezuela has always blamed the United States for every problem he's always had. And he can continue to do that now when it's an out and out showdown. If you're quietly moving behind the scenes a little bit more, the argument can be made. There are possibly um, strings that can be pulled that can help empower opposition members, et cetera. I mean, Venezuela is a very messy case. Um, And I think it is clear that the Trump administration's um, bet was uh, it's not playing out for them, uh, that Venezuela was near um, teetering and that the Maduro government was close to stepping away. Um, That is just not played out in the timeline that they thought they had, Uh, that the military, just like in Iran, is incredibly financially invested in maintaining um, the state as is. And sometimes quietly behind the scenes, you can release some of that pressure and maybe persuade people to step away. But when you go head to head, it's really hard to do so. This is Full Disclosure. I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS News's Face the Nation. Margaret, uh, you're so dynamic in terms of international headlines. I almost reluctant to take you back to the United States. But you cover D.C. now for a living, and we're in the thick of a you know huge Democratic primary. I think there are 23 candidates. Um, Biden seems to be leading the pack. I don't know what these numbers mean this early. We did have a an Economist YouGov national poll that came out that that puts Biden's lead uh, at at you know 26 percent. Elizabeth Warren has broken past Bernie Sanders. She now has 16 percent. To Sanders is 12 percent. There's Mayor Pete at 8 percent. Kamala Harris at 6 percent. And then I got to tell you, there are like eight or nine people in this that I've never heard of, and I almost forgot. Somebody had to point out on Twitter that Howard Schultz is still technically in this race. <laughs> 
Well, I, I think, did he tech, did he ever go through the final uh, declaration and filing of papers? I think sometimes, I think even internally at CBS, we look at 24 versus 23 candidates. I mean, the, the point is, is there may be too many of them, right? Um, and that is... Why hasn't anybody dropped out yet? I mean, I don't even know, for, you know, um, um, Kristen Gillibrand, I don't think she's even consistently polling at one or two percent. Right. I think she is going to make that debate stage uh, at the end of the month in Miami um, for Democrats. Uh, People like Steve Bullock, who I had on the program this past Sunday, the governor of Montana, who's arguing that, you know, he just got in within the past month and he's arguing that he won as a Democrat in a red Trump state, uh, Montana, that someone like him who can represent rural America might have a better shot at winning over those folks who aren't necessarily partisan, but tried out President Trump in 2016 because they thought he was going to stand up for farmers and for um, the heartland itself, that that maybe someone like him could be a, a challenger. And he's not polling. He's also not getting enough uh, in terms of um, donation to qualify for the bar that the DNC has set to make that debate stage. So it, this is a conversation within the Democratic Party about how they want to um, shape the the battlefield in some ways. Um, it, and that's fascinating in and of itself. The Democratic Party is kind of arguing with itself over how they want to define what it means to be a Democrat in, in this day and age. And that's what we're seeing as, as Amy Walter um, from the Cook Report laid it out. It's revolution versus restoration, right? You have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders saying the entire system has to change. It's broken. You have Joe Biden saying America's not broken. This is an aberration. We have to go back to how we were. Uh, And then you have President Trump saying we got to go way back farther um, (laughs) in some ways to, to when America was great, although maybe he'd argue he's made it great already, but needs to finish off the work in the second term. I wonder if Trump's uh approval rating would be higher. I mean, you talk about to put back on your markets and economy hat again. You have uh, unemployment at below 4%. The stock market is again near a record high. Um, his numbers on the economy have been great. Uh, he won not the popular vote, but he did take the electoral college. You would think his numbers would be higher now, but he's not in a position that he can exactly run back to the center or moderate. This is a person who made a name for himself as kind of a knife fighter out there polarizing, and that's what fires up his base. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to run against the Trump economy, right? And but and the president wants to argue about those things that enliven his base, immigration, and that's a fight that we're having right now play out. That's a crisis that's playing out at the border. Abortion, that's an issue that I think is interesting to be brought up ahead of an election year because Democrats would argue it has to be argued and has to be talked about as a party issue because of the threat that they perceive in southern states where domestic where state laws are being um, changed to restrict access, even though those laws aren't going to go into sure. effect. They're going to get caught up in the courts. They may not make it to the Supreme Court, but these are not laws that will be enacted anytime soon in many of these places because they'll be fiercely fought in the courts. But this is something that really works to President Trump's advantage in terms of bringing out the evangelical voter for those who have a strong moral objection to abortion. This has traditionally helped uh, bring out voters for Republicans. Um, And so these are fights that the president likes having and Democrats are also embracing. So I don't know that those things... um, 
uh, how, how that's going to play out. There are, Im- immigration and abortion are two of the most emotional issues you could get into, and they are central to the president's platform at the moment. And then you have the more traditional uh, economy um, card being played by the president, which is to say, look, I've rolled back regulation. Look, I've empowered the business community. And ultimately, do we get to 2020? And a lot of Republicans who say, I don't like uh, the cultural issues. I don't like some of these um sort of redefinition of what it means to be conservative, but I like the economy, therefore I'm going to hold my nose. Um, You hear conservatives debating that as well. I think it's a fascinating time. America is really trying to figure out who it is. Mm. I do wonder um, with um, the field here, and specifically in Biden, there has been some criticism at people like Beto O'Rourke, who hasn't really broken the mid-single-digit range. Why isn't the DNC or the locust control of the DNC um, prioritizing the U.S. Senate more? They actually lost seats in the right. twenty, you know, the twenty eighteen midterm election, and it's getting farther and farther away. If you're talking about abortion as being a, a and the Supreme Court as being a kind of a divisive trademark signature issue, it's only going to be harder for you if the Senate is even more and more out of reach. You're right, and that's the thing. That's kind of the. That should be the follow-up question in many ways to all of the 2020 contenders when they lay out, here's what I'm going to do for you if I'm elected president. And then you say, okay, in what America can you actually get that through and have it become law unless you have a Democratic-controlled Senate, Um, unless you have a, a platform that goes more persuasively to the middle where you can pull over some Republican votes because some of these more, quote-unquote, progressive issues, um, they may be promised by the president, but our model of government requires the advice and consent and the vote to uh, of Congress on a lot of these things. And so I think that is being reshaped. I, I also I think it's, it's funny often because the candidates on the Democratic side will promise all these things will happen, um, and complain about the president overusing executive authority, something that the current president complained the prior president relied too much on executive authority, uh, and yet promised the moon and the stars without doing what you just said, which is to line up a team to actually win those uh, senatorial seats. Um, I mean, wouldn't you think Beto would have to show that he could win statewide office in Texas first before you could become a national figure? I mean, he came awfully close with Ted Cruz, and that's an idiosyncratic figure. Right. And I think the same about Mayor Pete right. in Indiana. I'm not sure this is a person who would win statewide office in Indiana. Again, you could say Donald Trump wouldn't win statewide office in New York. <laughs> but if you're if you're someone who doesn't want a, a sort of a repeat of the electoral college divide of, of 2016, isn't that what you'd kind of have to put forward? It's a it's a good point. I mean, I was just watching uh, the New York local news here in Manhattan. I'm here visiting from Washington, and I saw their coverage of uh, Mayor De Blasio, who's also a presidential. Oh yeah, candidate. I forget. That's right. Right, yes. and you know, it it the piece could not have been less favorable to Mayor De Blasio in terms of local complaints. But then he's making a case on a national stage, thinking that. Maybe that doesn't matter. You know, maybe I can brand myself, sell myself to a national audience um, and that my record in in my home area won't count. Um, It's a question for us as Americans. You know, what matters to us now? Does does track record matter? Because in some ways, that's one of the um, things that is being held against Joe Biden, that he Mm -hmm. has 
experience in Washington. If you want one of these outsiders with no experience in Washington or less experience in Washington, or just you want to fall in love with the candidate, you want to be persuaded by the candidate's rhetoric, um, you've got a lot of choice there. But there aren't a lot of people who have extreme you know, ex- extremely deep portfolios of getting actual legislation through Congress, getting laws passed other than some of the old elder statesmen of the party, the Joe Bidens and the, the Bernie Sanders. You know, he's been such an outlier for the 30 years he's been in Washington, Senator Sanders, um, but he's been consistent in his ideology and in some of the things he's he's voted on. At least there's a record of it. it we're kind of like redefining what it means to be um, the, the leader and the commander in chief. Uh, and Americans, I don't know how it's going to swing back in 2020. Margaret, are there people, kind of the uh, the the elders of the institutional, you know, backers and the people who clearly don't want a repeat of 2016, who privately say, kind of when you get a couple of beers into them, that we can't nominate a woman. It just brings out um, it just brings out the worst of of certain people in swing states that maybe counterfactually that many people who voted for Trump would have voted for a Biden or for a white male. Do you still hear about this or has that kind of been pushed to the side? Um, I haven't heard, you know, maybe someone would think twice before saying something like that to me since I'm a woman. But um, I certainly do hear apprehension Um, on the opposite side of that. I've heard from uh, Republican political operatives, even though, say, the president— said he was very impressed by, say, Senator Kamala Harris's rollout, that he said she had the strongest rollout of a campaign. Privately, I heard operatives say, but you have to look the part, um, Mm. and America's not ready for a woman. I have heard um, some Republican strategists say that to me. Um, I'd say there are a lot of Republican lawmakers who strongly disagree with that. I mean, you look at the leadership you see on Capitol Hill, the numbers are a lot slimmer on the Republican side for uh, female lawmakers. But you look at a Joni Ernst, Iowa, who's in leadership on the Senate side. Uh, you look at Liz Cheney, really strong in the House in leadership and possibly making a bid for the Senate, who do think and have been vocal in saying that the party needs to recruit more women. Um, and you even had, uh, you know, the head of the RNC say, we haven't done a good job. She said that to me on, on Face the Nation at recruiting more women. So um, there is an awareness in the political leadership that this is something that, you know, they need to build up a stronger stable of candidates on on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, I mean, look at how many you have running. You have at least five women uh, running at this point. I don't know what America's ready for. Margaret, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, I'd like you to, to be a little indulgent and talk about yourself. I mean, there are these, there was this profile written about you, and you graduated from UVA, was it in 2002? That's right. So did you, uh, you know, inter- by, by way of advice to young people who want to get into television, and whatever television is, it's being disrupted left and right. Do it you is. go into, you know, analog TV? Do you go into whatever it is, print? Um, all of these lines are kind of bleeding into one right now. But did you carpet bomb the landscape with resumes and clips? I mean, there was part of you that was very interested in the Arab Middle East before it was chic to be mm-hmm. interested in the Arab Middle East. You're here um, with this storied you know, Sunday morning politics show now on CBS. Looking back, kind of what you did, what's impartable? What can be taught to other people? Well, look, the landscape, as you just laid out, is changing. We're trying to figure out where viewers are and how they consume information um, on devices, et cetera. So 
I don't know what that uh, landscape will be to consume the product, but the product itself of journalism needs to uh, not have its standards changed. Um, and I feel like we have to constantly push back on that. And so I would say to anyone trying to become a journalist that having a skill set that's an area of expertise will be really useful to help define you personally. Um, the fact that I had a background in the Middle East, uh, you know, I came out of school in 2002, 9-11 had just happened. It, it definitely stood out on my resume that I had that skill set um, in that time, but I went into financial news and I learned so much. Um, it, for me, I treated those first five years as kind of paid graduate school, you know, learning on the job as much as I possibly can do. And, and that's what I advise other young people trying to start out. Learn as much as you can. Don't worry so much about fast forwarding in the, in the first five years. Worry about building out your skill set as much as you can, because who knows if you'll have to be, you know, in a digital world, <laughs> on a television screen, writing articles, whatever it is, your basic journalistic skill set needs to be strong. I mean, when when did you look back and, and you're grateful for pouncing on certain occasions? I mean, the Arab Spring must have been a such an opportunity for you, for those stars to align while you were hosting financial television in 2010? Well, it certainly, um, it, it reminded me um, of what, you know, first sort of made me interested in the region and made me interested in so many of the storylines that I um, followed in the years building up to that too. When it was the retail and consumer space, it was understanding what made people act. You know, during the financial crisis, I remember the the data we were getting out of companies like Walmart showing how people were prioritizing what they were buying when they were buying paycheck to paycheck, uh, showing the financial strains on the consumer side of what was happening on Wall Street. That was interesting to me. When it, when it was covering the European debt crisis, it was seeing all of a sudden, you know, that the hard choices governments had to make on social programs that were affecting people, that were helping to lead in some ways to the rise of these more nationalistic far-right groups, and then bringing it to the Arab Spring, it's like these countries and movements aren't, they're all unique in their own circumstances at that time and at that moment, but there are these threads that that are common throughout all of them. Um, and so it was an education in having done all the things that I did up to that point of the Arab Spring where you could see, well, it's not just the fact that Facebook exists and protesters could find a way to congregate in the right place. That was part of it, but it was also the fact that there was like incredible inflation, that food prices were up considerably for the poor in Egypt at the time of the uprising. There was widespread, you know, unemployment and unrest and upset about that in particular. There, there are all these sort of contributing factors that are common no matter what the society is to what makes people angry. And you're seeing it now in terms of the conversations about income inequality in America and in Europe. Talk to me about all of this now in the context of you being a mommy. <laughs> and looking at the world maybe through the, the, the eyes of your child and having juggled all this for the longest time and having boned up on markets, on trade, on the Arab Spring, on covering the State Department and hosting this show now and doing State Department work and other work for the network uh, in addition to being a mom. It's a lot to juggle this. I have such respect and, you know, newfound awe for people who balance this, families who balance um, the work-life challenges. I mean, it's, it almost feels like balance is the wrong word to use, but how they manage it all. Um, 
I do think certainly for me, I since the birth of my son, I feel differently and have changed my mind. I feel more comfortable speaking about the uniqueness of um, being in my position and being a woman. Um, I think we need to talk a lot more and demystify a lot of these issues. You know, I turned around to my colleagues when I came back from maternity leave and realized, you know, that that the way I handled some of the decisions I had to make would influence things for other people at the company too. So I'm like, hey, why don't I turn around and talk to the other correspondents about what it's like to try to go away from your infant son for five days and have your biggest stress be, how do I ship breast milk back from Hanoi, Vietnam? (laughs) Um, There are real life things that if we don't talk about more and make a little bit less, um, you know, uncomfortable, uh, will continue to be problems that people feel they have to figure out instead of as a society figuring out how do we help families stay together, work together and flourish while still contributing at work to their full extent. Um, it's something employers should be talking about. Indra Nuyi, the former CEO of PepsiCo, has been talking a lot about this too um, and the uniqueness of, of you know, our society and why you see perhaps a declining birth rate in our country and asking, well, maybe we shouldn't make it so hard for people to um, have a family and do powerful things at work um, and that they can balance a career, not just a job, but a career and a family. Um, So I'm learning all of this as I go. I'm thinking a lot of it. So through all of it as I go, but... um, Thanks for asking. Um. <laughs> well, I know my I know my son when you know he was born in 2010, and when you and I were doing um, TV appearances on Bloomberg TV, would see me on TV with you when he was in his high chair and kind of point at me. What does your son do when he sees you on TV? <laughs> well, he's nine months, so I don't know yet if he like gets it. If he he must recognize my voice. Um, <laughs> we don't let him really have screen time yet, but oh. my husband will turn on Fascination on Sundays. Um, when he's home with my son, and <laughs> and that's like the only TV he's allowed. I don't know. He helped co-host for a number of months. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're not stuffing his cheeks with avocado and saying, son, you best hope we resolve our differences with Mexico because mama ain't going to be able to afford Haas <laughs> avocados for you. <laughs> now, hey, I, he's already making a lot of noises like he wants to speak. And I'm, I'm sure it's from, you know, sitting and co-hosting the show and all that hearing people argue out out the politics. I'm, I can't wait to hear what he actually thinks. And we can't wait to have you on the show again. Oh, how do you like that by way of transition? Well done. Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS News, Face the Nation, veritable Swiss Army knife of beat coverage for CBS News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Robin. And hug the Bambino. Thanks. Full disclosure, special thanks to CBS News. Our engineer is John Valentine. Let me tell you about John Valentine. He's a great man who has been putting up with my antics at all hours of the day and night for five years now. Here's to five more, John. This show airs on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News on NPR.org, on the trusty NPR One app, and on iTunes, of course, at link fulldradio.com. We are an open primary big tent full of the most important issues for middle-class Americans and Albanians and Nigerians and every single listener of Full Disclosure on our planet. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.